Good morning, everybody. Love Talk Radio. This is Dr. Carol Francis, so welcome to Make Life Happen, and today we are with Suzanne Condon, who is going to inform parents out there that are sweating it out in terms of getting their children into college, and it is a huge industry nowadays as you work with your children's college applications. So Suzanne Condon, welcome. I'm so glad you could be here. Uh, How are you this morning? Thank you. Just fine. Busy. (laughs) This is a busy time. November is the busiest month of the year for us. Oh, yes, and I've caught you at a busy time, and thank you, because this is when parents and kids are going crazy, isn't it, with their their teen applications? I would say this is probably one of the most stressful months of the year for parents and students. Most of the applications, if the student is going to apply to a college in an early action or early decision capacity, they were due either November 1st or November 15th. A lot of the, the state schools, like the University of California schools, are all due the end of November, so November is a very busy time. Now, is that true across the nation where all of them are done at the end of November uh, in terms of no, the universities? Most of them, most schools are due somewhere around the 1st of January. Each school has a different set of requirements and recommendations. A lot of state schools are on a rolling admissions basis, so the sooner you get the application in, Um, the better your chances are of gaining admissions. So we always advise our students to get applications in as soon as possible. Okay, let's pretend that we have a student that's entering in the freshman of high school. And I know that it says on your site, Coast to Coast, which is c2collegeadmissions.com, it says about you that you have the ability to highlight the strengths of each individual student. So how does a student freshman year begin to really pay attention to their college resume? Um, We're talking about uh, freshmen in high school and how a freshman can plan ahead for this process so that then when they become a senior, they're ready and and their, their admissions profile is in order. One of the things that's most important for parents and students today is to be informed early. We used to... Uh, start working with students um, in ninth grade, but we are actually now opening up to work with students in eighth grade because it's really important for kids going into high school to understand what lies ahead in terms of what their choices will mean because kids have a lot of choices going into high school, choices on which classes to take, what level of classes to take, um, what activities get to get involved in, whether to join things or not join things, how to use their time. And so we like them to, to understand based on maybe perhaps what their college goals are, what their choices, um, how they will impact them. So back to your question about developing you know, something that sets a student apart. The most important thing for us as counseling, as, as independent college consultants, is to help a student find something that they're interested in. If we can find something that a student's interested in, then that can be developed to a higher level, and that in and of itself will make the student 
an interesting and attractive candidate. And really, it can be anything. And kids going into freshman year, they don't always know what they're interested in. So it's our recommendation that they basically dabble. Try try a little this, try a little that, join a few clubs. Experiment around and see if you can find something that you do have an interest in. And then, if so, stick with it. Okay, so it's great advice and easy to do for those students that have some sort of focus or they've got their personality pretty well defined or those individuals that are comfortable dabbling. But how about those individuals that are just kind of lost? All they want to do is be a student, have a social life, play video games. Well, I think that there's a lot of those kids. And when we meet with Mm -hmm. them, I have to say that I think every single student that I've ever met with in the last 12 years, I can find something unique or special about them. And I'll give you some examples because you're right, it isn't isn't always easy to find something that a student's interested in. Um, We had a boy a few years ago who really was very, um, you know, lackadaisical and quite negative about getting involved in things, and his mom was very nervous and uptight because he was not involved in much whatsoever. And we sat with him for quite a while, and we the only thing we could come up with was that he liked to play video games. And that that's that's pretty across the board with most boys. And um, we said, well, if that's what you really love, would you be interested in going to a summer program where that is the emphasis of the program, designing a, designing video games? And he said, sure. So we sent him to USC, has a summer program for three weeks. It's a residential program. And he went, and it was on video game design. And actually, USC has a major in that. He became so excited about that as a possibility for a career. He became became completely engaged in the college process, got involved in things. He knew then what he wanted to do and um, became excited about the whole process of going to college and maybe finding something to do that he was interested in. So it can be as simple as that. Um, we had another boy that came in years ago, and I'll never forget we sat with him. And, you know, we were trying to find something that he was interested in early on. And, and he really he was just one of these kids that just grunted and really wouldn't say much at all. And finally he just said, all right, I'll tell you what I want. Just surround me with beautiful women. And we just started laughing, and he started laughing, and we said, okay, if you if that's what you want, we'll help you out. And we called up our local orthodontist, and he was right there, and we said, listen, we have a young man who is willing to work this summer for free. Would you be willing to take on an intern? And they said, absolutely. And he went in and started working, and there's all kinds of beautiful girls at the orthodontist office in high school, and this kid loved it. He was up every morning at the office at 7 a.m. They ended up paying him, and he ended up deciding that he wanted to become a dentist. So, you know, you can find something out of nothing, really, if you if you delve enough and you ask enough questions and you are open and optimistic and playful with it. You, you can help kids um, find something that they do like and do enjoy. You know, it's, it's, a, it's well said. You're trying to find a way to soak, soak a flame that exists inside of each individual. And I do think that in working with uh, children and teenagers, I, I find often that their flames are totally submerged under the pressures of kind of mundane coursework, task-taking, memorization. It really has nothing germane to their everyday life. And uh, I I think that we have to be really careful in our educational system because as they go into college, 
they still have to function and perform in a program that doesn't necessarily match their verb or vigor and where you are making it pertinent. What do you think about that? I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that they have to conform and we have many kids that'll come to us and they'll have a very fine transcript but then there'll be, you know, a grade here, a grade there that's that's off and we'll say, What happened? They'll say, Well, I didn't like the teacher or I didn't I didn't think the teacher was, you know, teaching well and unfortunately the way the system works is you do have to be somewhat of a conformist and conform to what's, you know, out there in order to to succeed. But um we really like the kids to be individuals and really like them to find something that sets them apart that they're very much interested in, whether it's an academic level of interest, a specific area of you know interest academically or extracurricularly. Um, a lot of kids you know have a hard time communicating, and one of the things that we've found is that these crisis hotlines or teen hotlines are wonderful places for kids to go out and gain real-life experience. One of the things that I've always been a strong advocate of is having a course in high school for kids to learn to communicate because that's one of the things that I see lacking in kids going off to college is not only their verbal skills but their writing skills. And there's a program here locally, a community helpline, where they train kids. It's a crisis hotline. They spend 45 hours of training in conflict resolution and reflective listening and just basic good core communication skills. And I found that the kids that have um, participated in that program have really matured and gone on to do really great things. So communication is likely one of the 12 simple steps of success in college admissions process. Is that correct? <laughs> I would absolutely agree. I would absolutely okay. agree with that. And I, I'd say that those are the two areas that that surprise me is the, the written communication and the verbal communication of kids going off to college. It's being able to sell yourself on some level in a way that it persuades another individual to be really intrigued by who you are. Right. That and that's where, in, in the past, kids used to be able to... Um, have interviews with the colleges that they're applying to. I mean, it was pretty common that you would set up an interview. But as the number, sheer number of kids applying to college grew to such high levels, we have seen more and more colleges have eliminated the interview process. And the interview used to give a student a chance to really show the admissions officer who they were as a person and what their passions were. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. now all of that has to come through the application and through the written word. So kids who are not strong writers, they're at a disadvantage. Well, before we go to the 12 simple steps that you've authored, can you tell me what you do at your clinic or your, your offices to help parents and to help students be able to do this very thing? be able to communicate to the colleges who they are. Well, I think the first and most important thing is is to gather all the information. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And what you want to do, if you want to present the strongest package to a college admissions committee, you want to be sure that you understand all the terminology and all the nuances. Um, so that that's first and foremost. I, when I speak to parents, I always say, gather the information. The Internet is a great source. I mean, if you hear words like like early action, early decision, single-choice early action, know what those mean because those words can su- substantially increase your chances of gaining admissions to a college. 
that's that's first and foremost. Um, hmm. I, I think that parents today are just they're inundated with information coming off of all forms of media. But you've got to understand what it means because just, for instance, this early admissions um, can make such a difference. I was looking at a student applying to Cornell, and if the student applied regular decision, um, she had an 18% chance of gaining admissions versus applying early decision, she had a 32% chance of applying gaining admissions. And so we see substantial increases in those areas. And a lot of parents and a lot of students don't really even understand what that means, you mm-hmm. know, to apply early decision, early action, single-choice early action. Some of those are binding agreements. Some are non-binding agreements. Okay, so in other words, look at all the universities you want to go to and find out what the percentages are in terms of being able to be admitted given the time that you're going to send your application in. And what would be a second step? Well, so so we want to make if we want to really prepare a student for going to college, we want to look at what an admissions officer is going to be looking at when they're evaluating a student. I would say the first thing they're going to look at is the rigor of the curriculum that the student selects in high school. So that's very important. A, a college admissions officer is going to say, did this student challenge themselves? to their fullest potential, given what was offered at their school. So they will not be compared to kids at other schools. They'll be ki- compared to students at their school. So st- a student who goes to, attends a school that doesn't have AP classes will not be at a disadvantage if, if those are not offered at their school. So rigor of curriculum is very important. They don't want to see students who are straight-A students who then don't step it up and challenge themselves. They want to see kids who have continued to challenge themselves through their senior year and not let up. Um, And again, this is putting a lot of pressure on kids. Kids are working so hard to to try to, you know, make sure that they keep their grades up, their curriculum strong, they're involved in extracurricular activities, and all this is very, very stressful for kids. So it's important, I really feel, to have a balance, to balance your life between your academics, your extracurricular, your family, and your your hobbies and the things you enjoy. But but colleges do look at the rigor of the curriculum. So parents often say, well, should my student take that honors or AP class and get a B or just take that regular class and get an A? And, you know, that's not really an easy answer because if I was going to give the easy answer is they should take the AP class and get the A. I mean, that's that's Mm -hmm. the easy answer, but that's not always (laughs) the way it works out. Um, what they should do is they should balance out that curriculum where they do have have the the good grades, but they're also challenging themselves. So if you can get a B in an honors or an AP class, I would always recommend taking that. I think you'll get a better a better education overall, and you'll be in a better position to score well on your SAT tests. And that's another factor that's very important in the college admissions process: are your standardized test scores. Um, you know, if, if, if we're talking about ranking of importance, it's rigor of curriculum, your grades, and your standardized test scores. Those are your first three areas of importance. And so a lot of kids today are preparing for those standardized test tests, the ACT, the SAT, the subject area tests. And I would like parents to know that students can take either an SAT or an ACT, and every college will accept either of those two tests equally. But kids today are preparing. They're you know they're studying for these tests. 
they they can take the the, the pre SAT as early as eighth grade. Is that correct? They can, but um, we mostly see kids taking a pre SAT or PSAT, um, perhaps in the tenth grade, just to get their feet wet, just to feel out the test. The actual PSAT is taken in the October of the junior year, and those are the scores that are calculated to determine who becomes a national merit finalist, and that's a very small number of kids. That's less than 3% of the kids who take the test. The PSAT is a practice. That's what it is. It's a practice for the SAT. Colleges do not see those scores unless you're a national merit finalist. And so I would recommend that every student take the PSAT. If you can take it in your 10th grade, great, take it. Take it again in 11th grade. See where your areas of weakness are because you'll get a report back from that and then study in those areas that can help you increase your scores. Now, when does a person make a decision to take the SAT or the ACT or both? Um, I have a daughter who's a junior, so I'll speak from experience. I have two older children. I have a daughter who's 29 who's got a Ph.D., a son who's 28 who's got a master's, and I've got an 11th grader who wants to be an actress. So I I run the gamut with my own kids. And so I'm just as nervous as every other parent out there. I had my daughter um, begin test prep in September in anticipation of taking her SAT in March, her first her first sitting of her SAT in March. Um, she would probably take her second sitting for the SAT in May, and she would take her subject area tests in June. That's that's quite typical of the junior year. Okay. Then, if a and student is not happy with if they're not happy with those scores, they can then in their senior year in October, November, and December retake any of those tests that they would like. Mm-hmm. One now, thing I caution parents about is taking them too early when they're not prepared. Because? Well, because some some of the very, very competitive top schools will ask to see all scores that you that you've taken. And so we want to present the strongest image and package possible. So we just say, we do not advise taking the test until you're prepared. Taking practice tests is absolutely recommended. Go in, sit down for three hours under time conditions and take practice tests. But don't go and sit for your regular test until you're 100% feeling that you're ready for that test. Now, there are so many people that um, go to the programs that are paid for in terms of preparing. What, what are your thoughts about those programs? Well, I think you have to really consider that seriously because these tests are scored on a curve. So your student will be competing against those kids who have had extensive test prep. So, of course, financially this is a consideration. There's all levels of test prep. There's online test prep, a student which is very reasonable, e-test prep, there's... um, there are books you can buy. The Princeton Review has all kinds of wonderful test prep materials. I think they're the leader in test prep. And um, you can pick up there. They have a whole book of, of tests. And um, students, I have many students that do this on their own. However, if money is not a factor, I have students that do one-on-one testing and, and uh, you know do extensive testing for the SAT as well as the subject area tests. And when it comes to testing and when it comes to grades, what about the student who's relatively capable um, to go to college but does manifest some sort of learning disability or handicap, and now what do they do? 
you know, we work with a lot of kids with learning differences and learning issues. Um, I think that schools are very open to those students and are very interested in those students because usually those students have had to work very hard to overcome some sort of disability. They tend to be kids who have very good work work ethics and work habits, and um, I find they do very well in college. It's important if you have a student like that to look at schools that have a support system or an accommodate a, a support center that will help them with their particular disability or need. We oftentimes have a student um, disclose that information in additional information so that a college will understand if we have a student who shows a weakness in a particular area, whether it's in testing or academics, they'll know that that was because of a particular disability. We find the colleges to be very open to kids with learning issues and learning disabilities, and it doesn't seem to really... Um, be a negative in the admissions process. In fact, and sometimes it can, it can often be helpful for those kids. I would think that some universities would be a little bit suspicious that someone's trying to excuse grades that otherwise could have been at a higher level with some sort of explanation like this. Well, not if it's documented. Um, not if it's if it's been documented by um, educational testing. Um, I think that they understand that that you know. Every student is different, and each student is looked at in a holistic approach. So um, excusing grades, it's, it's, it's not an excuse for grades, but it does give an explanation in some cases. Um, I'm working with a young man right now, and his, his uh, mother is an acupuncturist, and his parents are very much naturalists, and he has very, very high-level ADHD and was never medicated. And um, just recently, finally in his senior year, they decided that they would allow him to take medication, and it made a substantial difference in his grades. And he's he's doing so well right now and, and just so motivated. And I think that colleges do need to know that. This was a kid that was diagnosed with ADHD in third grade. Parents, you know, were against medication. This kid had to, you know learn coping strategies and studied probably twice as hard as anyone else to get the grades that he got. But were those grades really a true reflection of his ability? Well, now that he's been on medication, we see that he's, you know, doing substantially better. So I think it's important for a college to understand that perhaps those grades weren't really a true reflection of what he can do. Some students decide that the pressure of getting into a four-year college is just too much or they just have other complications, financial or family complications, that make it so that they really need to choose a two-year college instead. And what are the drawbacks or benefits of going the two-year college route? I think we're going to see more and more kids opting for the two-year college route. I think um, with the economy the way it is and parents' financial situations, more and more I'm seeing parents come in and bring their kids to me and say, look, we can't really afford four years of a private school. What should we do? A two-year college is one option. Um, another option is to find schools where the student is going to get merit money. And that's where a student's profile, their SAT score and their GPA, is substantially above that college's mean or average. Oftentimes, if your student is above those means and averages, you will get what's called merit money, even if you don't qualify for financial aid based on your income. 
Well, I think two-year colleges are a wonderful way to go. I think the drawbacks are you lose a little bit of that sense of community that you get if you do go to a four-year college. If you go to a four-year college and you're living in a dorm and you're part of that community, you're getting that whole college experience. You you won't necessarily get that at a two-year college, although I have to say I sat in on a class just a few weeks ago at our local junior college, and I was extremely impressed by the teacher, by the students, by the the school, by the I was looking at the bulletin boards and the extracurricular activities that were being offered, and I thought to myself, you know what? More and more, we're going to see parents opting for two, the two year uh, the two year junior college before going to the college. First of all, it's a great place for kids who haven't applied themselves in high school and all of a sudden the light bulb goes off a little bit later and they can go then to the junior college and prove themselves and show the college that, that they can do the work. So not only is it a great uh, great asset financially, but it also can be a great place for a kid who just needs a little bit more time to mature. Um, let's talk about the money, for example. And, and Earlier we were talking about that there's so many students coming in from the foreign markets, the countries that want to be educated here, and that many of the universities, an article that came out today, are interested in these students in part because they pay full fee um, admissions, and that that's very attractive to universities where money is such a crunch. But then what does that do to those in the United States as citizens in applying to those places and perhaps also wanting a scholarship? Well, first of all, most colleges are what's called need need blind. So they do not take into consideration whether or not you do need financial aid. However, a student coming over internationally, it's obvious that they will be paying full full fare. I believe the colleges would be interested in those students for two reasons. One, yes, they will pay the full tuition, but two, they offer the student body diversity. And all the colleges today are looking for diversity. They want to have the students have a learning experience both inside the classroom as well as outside the classroom. So when students come from foreign countries, kids gain a lot of global knowledge and information that perhaps they would not have if they were at a state school that was predominantly in-state in state students. Interesting, uh, interesting point of view. You make the, you make the universities or colleges sound very much like they want to sculpture a community that is that is very rich for their students. And um, how about the? Yeah, you say absolutely, but it also is very much of a financial institution. They, these are businesses. Mm-hmm. So what would what 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 is the way a student applicant, knowing that they're applying to a college, it's really about a business as well as diversity, how how does that impact the application process? Well, again, going back to the financial aspect, colleges are need-blind. So when they're selecting their class, they're not looking at who can pay and who needs money. A lot of colleges have tremendous endowment funds, and they have the money to be able to offer students um, packages. Um, financial aid is a whole nother specialty, but parents should know that um, it's my recommendation that everyone fill out the FAFSA form, that's the federal aid form, because even if you don't get money, you you stand a chance of getting loans throughout college. And um, some of these loans are subsidized and some are unsubsidized. The subsidized loans 
do not incur any interest for four years. They're interest-free loans, and you don't start paying them until the student graduates. So um, financially, I don't, I don't see the colleges selecting their class based on a financial, financial interest. What I do see is the colleges looking at a community of students and wanting to make sure, if you take like a pie, that each piece of the pie is rich, and rich and delicious in and of itself so that we have students with all different backgrounds and all different levels of interests and all different cultures. And, and, and that is what will help educate the students outside the classroom. We want, these mm. colleges want to see kids that other kids can learn from. If that, that could be from experiences that they've had. It could be mm. from a talent that they have. It could be from an uh, academic area of interest that they have. I mean, schools like Harvard and these high-end colleges will say, we could fill four, four classes of freshmen, you know, if we were just looking at SAT and GPA with kids that have, you know, similar profiles. But what we're looking for is to round out a class of really interesting students. Beautifully said. Suzanne, can you please tell all of our listeners how they can contact you specifically? And also your partner, Wendy. See, Wendy, I don't know her last name. <laughs> Gilbertson. Wendy and I have been doing um, independent counseling for the last 12 years. I think both of us got into it because we just absolutely love teenagers. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's just I, I've always loved that age of students. And so we are located in um, Los, the Southern California, Los Angeles area, Palos Verdes, California. Our office is there. However, we work with people all over the country. In fact, we've worked with students all over the world. We had a student from Hong Kong a couple years ago. Um, it's our preference to be able to meet the student, but today with Skype and all the you know, electronics that we have, we are able to work with students um, even if they are not in our local area. That's very nice and to know. You're be, very good on the um, phone, too. Uh, we can be reached. Um, our company is called Coast to Coast College Admissions. It's C, the letter C, the number two, the letter C, collegeadmissions.com is our website. And our phone number is 310-600-2877. And we're happy if you call and we'll answer any questions you have. You know, If you have any questions, we're happy to help you out. I thank you so much, Susanna. Thanks also to Wendy. I know you two personally are very invested in the well-being of students, and thanks for taking this time to join us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having this show and this opportunity for parents to become a little bit more educated. And parents, you will see all of their contact information on the site that you're looking at in terms of this radio station, and we will be sending out press releases so that all parents can be fully harnessed to help their students face this next phase of their life. Thank you very much. We're going to take a little break here. Thanks, Suzanne. Take care of yourself today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks so much. Okay. Sure. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the radio station, Make Life Happen. This is all about helping your teens today, and today we have with us is our second guest, Dr. Mo Gilbart, and you are there. Yes, Dr. Gilbart? Yes, can you hear me? 
Yes, I certainly can. Wonderful. Well, you were on air, and we are talking today about teenagers and being able to help them through difficult times. One of the difficult times we just finished talking about was applying for college and acting like you are ready to go by the time you're out of eighth grade. But I know that there's so many, I know the stress is incredible. There's so many other things that teenagers face in terms of um, drug and alcohol use, availability and addiction, sexuality, partying, things of that sort, eating disorders. And I know that you work with teens and you work with parents, and I wanted to leave the field wide open for you as you contemplate what are the areas you wish parents really understood about how they could help their teenagers through this stressful but fun time of life. Well, good question. The uh, I do two things, by the way. So, you know, as a psychologist in practice with a large group, we see a wide range of uh, kids and problems and issues. And, and then I'm also the director at Torrance Memorial Hospital Thel McMillan Center. So there we specialize primarily in uh, drug and alcohol uh, problems. And the two are not unconnected. And what I mean right. is uh, stress and uh pressures and uh, peer pressures and then what we call co-occurring disorders, meaning anxiety, ADD, depression, all are uh, connected to levels of, you know, using drugs and alcohol as a way of coping. So they're not unconnected, and it's not only, I think it's what, what probably important in, in light of what I think you're been talking about earlier this morning. I do know the Suzanne and uh, Wendy uh, and okay. their company. But, uh, you know, it's not only, quote, unquote, bad kids or not smart kids or that, that are feeling both the pressure as well as turning to drugs and alcohol uh, as ways of coping. We have kids who are heading to the Ivy League schools or whatever who, uh, you know, either drop, can't go or drop out or are going to wind up with lots of difficulties because even though they may be doing really well in school, they still have an awful lot of problems that are unresolved. And, and if you think about it, when those kids suddenly take off and are not under the supervision of their parents, for most of them for the first time in their life, uh, then, you know, havoc can break loose. That's an interesting point. You're talking about once they get into the college scene and they have so much freedom. I think that um, dealing with teenagers, you're really raising a, a very different human being, isn't it? That age 12, the brain actually takes a very different turn or shift. Typically, they can now have abstract reasoning, but they're also moving into having more and more of an identity that's um, a, a, about themselves, the egocentricity of it all. I find parents complaining incredibly about how self-centered their teenagers are. And uh, and yet, their teenagers really need them to be behind them, even though they may not be the nicest people to be around. Right. What would you say to parents about helping their teens uh, and, and how parents stay level-headed during this process? Well, I think first off, you know, you mentioned some, some issues regarding uh, uh, the brain and the development. So I think it's worthwhile to just say a little bit, which is, you know, research now shows we used to think the brain was pretty much fully developed by early in life, six, seven, eight years old perhaps. We now know that it actually is close to 25 before the brain is fully developed. And that means neurons are forming, uh, myelin sheaths are, are uh, pruning and so on. So the brain is, de and is developing in a uh, certain pattern. And, and the interesting part for a teenager is the first thing that gets developed is their physical, their sense of physical self. And then comes their emotions. And then comes... Uh, uh, 
I forgot the next book, but the last thing to develop is the is the logical and judgment area of their brain. So that's one mm-hmm. reason why you have these sort of out of control teenagers with hormones bursting and feelings busting at the seams who don't haven't yet developed the ability to cognitively and logically uh you know manage those those kinds of feelings. It, mm-hmm. it's interesting the you know the people who have it right of all things are, are the car rental people. Meaning <laughs> I'm serious, you can do anything. You can go vote, you can go join the army and shoot people, you can uh drink, you can do lots of things except you can't rent a car until you're 25. Now, I don't think they did it for that particular uh-huh. reason, but it just so happens that they have it correct uh mm-hmm. because again, it's up in, and and then if you throw on top of into that developing brain very very fragile brain you throw on top of that uh inserting drug or alcohol uh chemicals then you really throw the whole development into into a disarray so your question though is what can parents do mm-hmm. first they need to have yeah. an understanding and i think there's you know i'm i'm guessing that you're probably having some of these discussions today or other times in your program but you know there's certain basic uh, parental strategies, which uh, you know, primarily involve the obvious of communication and having open lines of communication. But but also, I think it's really important to set limits on kids. Have I, I use uh, when I train? I say train parents or work with parents. I, there's three things, and they go together. And 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 so it's setting limits, having consequences, and following through. So mm-hmm. if you have any one of those without the other two then it's really just sort of like a dog with, you know, bark without a bite. Lots of parents set limits, but it's setting limits with consequences and following through, which is is important. And the reason, and that's not punishing the children. That's actually very, uh, uh, it, it actually feel, makes them feel very safe because if they have good limits set around them, then they know that somebody will protect them when they step up over those limits. Mm-hmm. It's just very, very well said, Dr. Galbart. I, I find that uh, one of the things that I really recommend to parents is to recognize that you start you start raising your teenager when they're six years old because that's when you're forming their ability to think about why there are consequences, think about what the limits are in terms of being reasonable, and also forming a very um, sympathetical relationship with your child. It's not about being a buddy or friend, although that, there are moments of that, but uh, being able to... Uh, to form the warmth and the communication and the connection and keeping involved in your child's life so that by the time they're teenagers, you have a really solid foundation in their soul, so to speak, so they understand that you're not coming from just fighting them in their teenage years to discipline them and hold them back, but that you're a reasonable and involved parent that cares to do things in an understanding and understandable fashion. So raising teenagers starts at age six in my mind. Well, that's a good point. Uh, I, I agree. <laughs> we stopped there on that moment. But now we talk about those individuals that decide they're going to go and enjoy their, their partying friends, and they're introduced to a whole world of alcohol, drugs, and sex. And they have to make decisions uh, as teenagers about going if they're allowed to go and about participating. And when can a parent know that those types of moments that some people say are typical teenage moments are actually out of hand and causing a, t- a lot of damage to an otherwise reasonable child? Uh, what what do we look for? What are the signs? And then how do we intervene once they've almost stepped too far into that world? Well, uh, I'm a little bit, 
I was going to say radical or rigid, meaning I think although I understand data and I understand statistics about the percent of kids who use uh, both drugs and alcohol, and it's pretty high. I mean, marijuana is probably close to 50% of, I think, kids and have have attempted it or or used it, and and alcohol may be closer to 75%. Uh, I still see almost any use as a potential problem. Okay. And okay. Uh, and needs to be addressed. So I think one mistake a parent could make is to think, well, everybody does it. So, mm-hmm. you know, the average parent generally doesn't know about their, I mean, on the average, parents don't know about their kids' drug or alcohol problem for two years that they've been using. Okay. Wow. So I think it's really important. And by then, it, it's obviously, you know, it's progressed to a pretty difficult place. Uh, right. So I think it's really important to know uh, to be aware of, to kind of, basically to pay attention, keep your eyes open. Uh, I think, you know, you walk into somebody, into your child's room, you look at the posters and pictures they have up, you look at the T-shirts they wear, you listen to the music that they're listening to, you uh, just kind of keep your eyes open and 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 recognize that when they are drug or alcohol uh, related, it doesn't mean your child suddenly has a problem and they need to be sent to rehab. Not f- far from that, but it does require at least attending to and communicating about, and saying and, and asking what that that's about. Another thing that's really important, and in, in light of, in, in line with that, is uh, you know parents also need it, you need to know your own your own behavior. First of all, you know, your kids are going to look at what you do, not what you say. Okay, so if you're modeling. Mm-hmm behavior that is, uh, you know, it, 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 it's hard to tell a, a, you know, your child, hey, you know, alcohol is not good for you. And yet, you know, every every celebration and every time you sit down at dinner, uh, alcohol is a part of, of it. Uh, and so it, modeling behavior is, is, you know, really important. Uh, and like I said, you know, I think it's really, and, and once there is a problem, once it does raise its head, then you need to understand that you need to do something, and, and 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 again, in my opinion, sort of civil liberties, quote unquote, for children, uh, really are sort of go out the window in service of trying to protect them from themselves. I know it sounds a little radical, like I say, but uh, you know, you're you're better off being accused of snooping and and finding something than you, than you are of letting something go and having it take two years to take hold. Right, and take hold of their brain, their development, their grades, exactly. their future. And, and, and the law, exactly, you just hit it all. You know, the, the negative consequences related to drug and alcohol for teenagers are immense. By the way, let me say this. Most teenagers are not addicts. Most teenagers who are drinking and using are not addicts and will not become addicts, okay? Mm-hmm. The, but we have to sort of protect them from themselves because the, the use of alcohol and drugs winds up having severe negative consequences which will follow them in the future, things like uh, academic performance. Mm-hmm. If you're drinking on a regular basis, uh, if, two pe- if, somebody's, if you're drinking on a regular basis, your memory uh, ability to retain information is about 10 to 15% less than a person who is not on, mm-hmm. on a particular night. So, for example, two kids with the exact same amount of intelligence who study the exact same amount for a test, One's got a drinking issue, one doesn't. One will get, let's say, a B, and the other one will get a C or a D. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, and that doesn't mean they're drinking during the exam, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's negative consequences in terms of school uh, academic achievement. There's lost opportunities uh, in terms of uh, 
problems they may run into. You know, if you if you get arrested for something as simple as marijuana possession, you may not be able to get uh, uh, FAFSA uh, student loan because you know you'd have to put down in your application you've been arrested, and that may interfere. Uh, I, I know some of the police departments, for example, who, when they go to recruit young, you know, new policemen, and they ask people, you know, if they've used marijuana in the last five years, and when they say yes, they can't get on the police force. That's just one small example. So there's those lost opportunities. Then there, are, of course, the real serious ones, which are, I think, the main thing is, you know, the the uh, life expectancy for uh, m- most of the population has greatly increased over the years, except for kids uh, 15 to, I believe, about 21 or so. And that is, and and the leading cause of death in those kids are all alcohol and drug-related, homicide, suicide, and traffic accidents. And traffic accidents, uh, that age range, I think, accounts for about almost 50% of traffic fatalities. So the point is we have to protect kids from themselves when they think it's just like I'm doing what everybody else does. Mo, Mo Galbert, you are so talking to the parents and trying to motivate them to pay attention. Don't become lackadaisical. Right. And also rise up to the task of being a parent, which exactly. means you have to protect your child sometimes from themselves. You don't get to be popular or liked, and sometimes they're going to rebel, and it's uncomfortable and aggravating and full of angst, but it's part of the job of being a parent to a teenager. You're saying we we can't afford to fill our teenagers. This is too serious. Exactly. Am I overstepping this or no? Oh, no. I, I think, you you know, again, I think every, again, I, I'm not naive, meaning kids are going to go out on Friday and have parties and smoke pot. And But all I'm saying is that it all needs to be uh, addressed and, and dealt with and talked about and not ignored to the point like, I mean, you know, what parents say things, parents say things like, you know, I, I give a talk that has to do with the myths that parents have to uh, understand. Parents say things like, well, I was, grew up in the 60s and I smoked pot and you know we all got okay my you know we were all fine well that's not the way things are today for a number of reasons mm-hmm. the pressures in the society as well as the quality of marijuana is probably 15 mm-hmm. times stronger than it was in the 60s uh mm-hmm. other myths well they only drink beer well beer is alcohol okay and and mm-hmm. and the amount of alcohol in a beer is the same as in a glass of wine is the same as in a shot of of a hard liquor so mm-hmm. uh the fact they only drink beer is is you know not not a not something that protects them. Uh, another myth is everybody does it, and this is something I work a lot with parents, especially in our rehab. Is you know everybody doesn't do it. In fact, we're trying to study the res, we call it resiliency or or the the protective factors of that 25% of kids who do not attempt you know or experiment or drink. So it's it's. It feels like everybody, when you are involved in alcohol or drugs, and most of the kids you're staying with are doing the same thing. But it's important to know that 25% of kids do not. So there is there there is something that protects them for, or allows them to make the proper decisions early on in their life. Where does the where, this is just fabulous information? Where what are the qualities of that 25% of those students that don't? Don't go toward that direction. What are the what are the elements that seem to move them away from even becoming involved in the alcohol and drug world? Well, we're trying to, like I say, figure that out and find out more. But it, you know, it's, I think some of it is obvious. Kids with good self-esteem, kids who are either free from or at least more more than free from or at least dealing with uh, other issues 
uh, other, as I said earlier, co-occurring disorders like depression, anxiety, uh, ADD, uh, you know, having those things understood and treated before they turn into a problem. Uh, kids who are have close families and sit down at dinners with their families and who are, uh, you know, have some religious base to them, uh, kids who are uh, involved in, in uh, positive activities like sports or uh, some other kind of activity that they interrelate with others. Uh, so it's a combination of those kinds of factors, I believe. And, you know, okay. parenting is a big part of it. And so now let's let's say that the child has moved into a situation where they really have become rather belligerent about this. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, the parents in that position, you know, whether they were neglectful or they were really hands-on, let's just say the parents in that situation, how do you motivate a child, a teenager who's a child at the same time, to really reverse their identity and their involvement in the drug world mm-hmm. or the alcohol use? I, I would tell you. The, let me tell you. It's an interesting question, an interesting phenomenon of reality. Let me tell you what does not work, whether it comes from a doctor, meaning a, a, a pediatrician, or it comes from a psychologist, or it comes from a parent, or it comes from a teacher, or any other authority figure. Let me. What does not work is don't do it. It's no good for you. It'll ruin your brain. It'll do, you know, all the things that one should not do do not work. Okay. Kids will dig in okay. even further. So... Uh, uh, on a theoretical scale, maybe you know there's a there's a, uh, a way to, to address behavior that you want to change. It's called motivational interviewing, and what it really basically means is you have to speak to a teenager about the choices they're making and to find the uh, kind of the, the 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 difficulties they have in their choice, the pros and cons that they themselves have. Okay, and and there's always some degree of choice that they make, even if it's, you know even in the most belligerent child who is, you know, fully engaged in, in their in their uh, uh, activities has some degree of ambivalence. Okay, there's mm-hmm. always and and what you have to do is find you know you find the stage of change that a person is at and you address it with them. So for example, if somebody were smoking pot, you would say. You would talk to them about well, what are the, you know? It sounds like what, what does pot do for you? What's what's what what is there about it that you like? And they'll give you you know rattle off. They like it's fun and it makes them relaxed and they are popular at school and you know all those things about it that the reason that they do it. Then you ask them, is there anything about it at all that is problematic for you? And even in the worst situations, as I say, they they will have some degree of ambivalence and begin being able to talk about that. And then you begin looking at ways with them that they could address those that ambivalence, okay, mm-hmm. and address those negative consequences. Something interesting, for example, at the Phil McMillan Clinic, uh, we start every anybody who's re, anybody who's referred is is has very comprehensive initial evaluation. There's no charge. It's uh, done by qualified drug and alcohol counselor. It takes about an hour and a half. First off, with children, with teenagers, I would say probably, I think one in eight years that I remember has ever come to our group, to our clinic, willingly. In other words, somebody has forced them to come for help. Schools, mm-hmm. legal, legal uh, um, you know, law, law enforcement, it's parents, but they don't, they don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. After about an hour and a half of talking to them, and I was struck to find it out. Many of them actually want the help. Hmm. 
Okay, so they, I mean they're not like they haven't been converted, but I'm just saying they're willing to take a look and and have the help. What we found at you know several years ago was, it, at that point it really then now suddenly the parents don't really want to help. And, and when I say they don't want to help, it's just that it's it's very. Uh, uh, time-consuming. You know, all of a sudden we would get resistance from parents that say, "Well, I can't come five times a week, and I have to go. You know, I have mm-hmm. another two children. I have to take them to play." You know, and so what we do now is we have two evaluations that go on simultaneously. The parents are evaluated and educated at the same time that the uh, teen is, so that at least when the evaluation is over, the the parents have also been educated in kind of you know what's necessary. Mm-hmm. This is a beautiful, a beautiful system. Some people would say that uh, these type of involvements are very family systems oriented. And do you find that to be true in all cases? Some cases where the difficulties seem to be really emanating from the parents, or it's part of the system of the family, or is it predominantly because the teenager is going to a particular high school and involved in a particular social group? Or what's what's the breakdown? Yeah, I think it's all of it, and it's not, you know, predominantly the family necessarily. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes you can say, see parents who are, you know, not doing the best job they could, but that's not the majority. I think the majority, and, and, and you know, I always, when I work with a parent, parents often feel guilty and responsible, and they'll say, well, my child turned into this or that with drugs and alcohol, and because I did such and such, and I did so and so. And I, you know, often tell them, I say, look, if your son were the CEO of a company, would you walk around kind of with your thumbs in your lapel and go, wow, look at him. He's that because of me. You know, I made him that. And almost all parents say, of course not. But they want to take responsibility for the negative. And the reality is they have a piece of the puzzle, the piece of the pie. But there's media and there's school and there's teachers and there's, uh, you know, lots of influences on the kids, including the parents. So it's not that they're not part of it, but they're not all of it. Mm-hmm. Interesting process. Do you see um, Do you see teenagers now having more of these difficulties than before because of the pressures of getting into college or uh, being beautiful or popular? Do you, do you think the pressures are the same, worse in society and the United States aggravated this, or is it about the same? What's your take on that? Well, worse, worse relative. I think it's worse. You know, that's one of I believe one of the. Uh, uh, downsides of technology, you know, and so uh, as a result of the accessibility of everything, information, uh, communication, uh, you know, I mean, between tweet, tweeting and tweeting or whatever it is, and emails and texting and internet and you know, and the 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 ability to just know so much at, at your fingertips and you, you know you. you what, what, what kids as well as adults carry around in their in pocket in terms of a smartphone mm-hmm. is, you know, provides them thousands of times more information than when many of us were, you know, teenagers. And I think that does, you know, contribute a great deal to the kind of stress and pressure that they're under. It contributes a great deal to the kind of, uh, you know, making them vulnerable to things like advertisers and so on who are trying to get their uh, basically, their 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 dollars out of their pocketbooks, and and doing so with you know lots of uh, image setting. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's a much rougher time to be a teenager. Interesting. So I'm not sure that all teenagers would agree because they really like all of this input. They get to move as fast as they can. They stay socially connected in a certain fashion form, and and life is very accelerating and exciting almost all the time. It's like a 
It's like a fix on adrenaline. <laughs> well, I didn't say it's bad. You know, I, I look at it like, I call it like nuclear power. In other words, if nuclear <laughs> power is is channeled in the right direction, it lights up cities. If it's channeled mm-hmm. in the wrong direction, it blows up cities. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's it's. I'm not by any means saying that it is, you know, I mean, it's great. I'm just saying there's some, some potential, you know, uh, negative consequences or side effects of it. So, Dr. Gelbart, tell, we have about four more minutes, and so I want you to both explain to everybody how they can get in touch with you, your clinicians, and um, the, the various organizations that you represent, but also are, are there issues you just wish you had a burning opportunity to, to share with people so that they would wake up and take control of the circumstances in their life? Which well, way do you want to go? Uh, I guess the second one is one, you know, I think the main issues are, uh, you know, just stay in touch, keep keep communicating, and, 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 and keep uh, your finger on the pulse of or your eye on the ball of what is important and not get lost in meaningless details, which many of us do many, much of the time. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's sort of like, you know, the book says, don't sweat the small stuff. Uh, yeah. And sometimes we produce pressures and, and anxieties and so on by focusing on things that don't require that level of attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of getting hold of me, let's see, as, as I said, I'm the director of Gelbart Associates. We're here in the South Bay, which is uh, the beach cities, Hermosa Redondo, uh, Manhattan Beach, and Torrance, and, you know, areas around there. We have a large behavioral health group with about 25 uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, and we handle issues related to pretty much anything anyone would experience, both children and adults. Uh, And phone number is 310-257-5750. And if they want to see a website, can I give a a website up? Absolutely. www.com. Gelbart, that's G-E-L-B-A-R-T, then the word and, A-N-D, then the word associates, A-S-S-O-C-I-T-E-S dot com. And you can find out everything about our practice on the website. Then I'm also, as I mentioned, the director of the Thelma McMillan Center for Alcohol and Drug Treatment at Torrance Memorial Medical Center. And it's a uh, strictly outpatient program, very well thought of and very successful, been here for 20 years. And uh, the number there is 310-784-4879. And uh, we do an awful lot of community outreach in through that program, including, as I said, initial uh, evaluations that are no charge. We do drug testing for free for teenagers in the community. Parent just needs to call and set up that uh, exam. We provide a lot of training and education in the community as well as in the schools. So we do a lot more than just have a rehab center. So I think it's important for people to look into it. Well, Dr. Gelbart, it is. I, in fact, I refer people often to someone at Millen Center. It, it, it has heart. People are usually very soft. Their connections are rich, and most of the individuals that I know, a very high percentage of them do not return to their addiction, which says a lot. Oh, so great. I thank you for helping the people that I work with in that regard. And also for telling us so much about what we can do as parents to make sure that our children hopefully don't end up needing it as an adult 
as much as necessary. I thank you so much for participating today. Let's do thank this again. You. All right, we will. All right, Carol, thanks. Take care. Okay, have a good day. Take you care. Too. Bye-bye. And so, folks, that's our show for the day. This is Dr. Carol Francis. You've listened to two individuals that really do care about the well-being of your teenager and the capacity that you have to be able to help your teenager through tough times and times that really are important for their well-being in the future. I would start with Bo Galbart and that he says, stay in touch with your child. Stay on top of what's going on. Stay aware of what's occurring with your child. Don't let go. Be involved. Don't decide that just because they're a certain age that you can go off and have your own life. They need you at home. They need you present. They need you emotionally and physically involved, even though they're so very, very independent. There's nothing like having a teenager coming home from a very long, involved day to know that a mother and father is sitting there waiting to hear more about their day. Even if they don't want to share, they know that you're there, and that makes a big difference. Don't get caught up in your bills. Your financial concerns are big. Of course they are. Don't get caught up and worried about whether their room is clean and their clothes are taken care of, but instead about their very soul, their well-being. That's what they're going to walk forward with in terms of their well-being and also in terms of their solid relationship with you. So this is Dr. Carol Francis. I am a psychologist as well. I know what these individuals have said firsthand to be very true and well-tested. These are great folks to give you some advice, and I'm glad I could bring them to your ear. Have a fantastic day. Remember to carry your heart with you and always focus on making life happen to the very best that you can. And this is goodbye.